The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to HealthEd's Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Thursday, the 28th of October. Dr. Gary Groman shares his thoughts and concern about the imminent public availability of home rapid antigen testing. It may not be as simple as it is made out to be. And questions abound. Dr. Groman, tell us about yourself. Hello, David, and thank you again for having me on. Um, look, I'm a consultant virologist. I've got a long history with the TGA for some 17 years in regulation running the immunobiology group. And uh, I've since then, since 2015, I've been engaged with the World Health Organization, giving them advice on vaccines. Now, Dr. Groman, what's new overseas, of course, is going to become new in Australia. Uh, this whole idea of rapid antigen testing, I think it will be upon us uh, very shortly in the public. But do we know how to use it properly? Well, I, I think the answer at the moment is no. That would be the short answer. But there's a lot to talk about when it comes to rapid antigen testing. I think the first thing to understand is perhaps the landscape a little more broadly. So where have we come from? We've come from an ability to make vaccine, an ability to upload a lot of genetic sequences. And from there, we've been able to produce a rather brilliant and exquisite gold standard PCR test which is a laboratory test. From laboratory, we've moved to point of care testing, which involves not only PCR now, but also antigen and antibody tests that are fairly rapid, but are still done by experienced technicians or people that are trained uh, to be able to do these things to get consistency of results and accuracy, which is so important when it comes to eventual interpretation. Now we're moving to self-tests. Mm -hmm. And these self-tests are the rapid antigen tests, which we call RATS for short. And uh, these uh, uh, rapid antigen tests, RATS, are now becoming available. And if you go to the TGA website, you'll see well over, oh, I think nearly a dozen now, or close to a dozen of these RAT tests um, uh, being made available. Now, the companies haven't necessarily supplied them all into Australia yet uh, via their sponsors, but they are coming and are being used. And it brings up a whole, whole lot of questions. Uh, for example, the, the, the people that are using these tests, which is everybody in the public and GPs and nurses and whoever wants to use them, but particularly people at home, do they have the training? Mm. So how good are the instructions? How valid will this test be, particularly if it's a negative test? That's the first problem is training, at least with point of care testing and obviously laboratory testing, people are reasonably well trained and importantly, they have experience. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to sell a kit to mum and dad mm -hmm. uh, or do possibly to a GP who may have no experience. Uh, so that's the first dilemma. The second thing is really disposal of these kits. It, you know, we take a swab and we do the test, but how do we then dispose of it? That to me is another question mark, dispose of it safely. Sensitivity of these tests is supposed to be, according to the companies, in the 90 percentage sort of rank. 
Whether that's true or not is another matter. Uh, there's a paper in The Lancet from April 2007 that suggests it's a lot less. Uh, papers a year ago, and it is a year ago, comparing four of such rat kits show that they're really in the 70%. Mm. Now, if they are in the 90%, let's give them all the benefit of the doubt. And if they're done properly, then, of course, they'll be useful. If we're talking about 91 or 92 or 96%, then that would be great. Then I think it is useful. But it is a little bit counterintuitive to my scientific mind because the exquisite sensitivity that we get from PCR testing is much, much better always than an antigen test, mm. always. So it doesn't quite make sense to me yet. And I'd like to see more studies out there that go head to head with not only the eight or nine rapid antigen tests available versus PCR, but also versus themselves. And we haven't really got that data. And I'm a very data-driven person, so I'm a little reluctant to say they're either good or bad. I, I can only say what the companies claim. But what the companies claim in the real-world experience by technicians and scientists and people who do point-of-care and self-testing is another matter. And it's also a little problematic in that a scientist... Uh, or medical scientists who say wishes to compare these tests against each other and compared to the gold standard is a highly trained person who knows how to take a proper sample from the throat or nose or saliva even, depending on the test, because they all have a different approach. One, they take proper samples. So that is a, obviously the foundation for a good test. And then secondly, they know how to carry out this test without any mishaps. It's not as simple as, say, a pregnancy test or a urine dipstick kind of test, which are self-explanatory and the results appear before your eyes. Uh, this takes a little more in terms of sample preparation. I, I think, you know, that's, that's just dealing with the kit. That's just uh, dealing with uh, what we've got there. And then we've got the problem, I think, what does a positive test mean? I mean, what do you do? How do you advise your patient? Do you say isolate at home? Uh, do you isolate everybody in the household? Do you isolate the contacts that had in the last five days? There's no instructions about this from the Department of Health. Now, logically, I guess you treat it like a PCR test and you would say, please isolate at home and everybody, everywhere you've been uh, needs to be put on a hot list. So I'm not sure where this is all heading because uh, I don't think that was the original idea. So what's the advice? And I think health departments around Australia need to bring that advice together. It's easy enough for the TGA to register something um, and look at the data, but then its application and interpretation and followed up by patient advice is a whole other matter. Now, uh, as I said before, the detection of antigen uh, is not the same as the detection of nucleic acid. In fact, neither of those tests detect live virus. So there's another issue. <laughs> uh, and um, assumptions are clearly being made. And so we're in a very gray area still at the moment. Uh, we have the test, tests, I should say, they are registered. There's around about eight or so listed on the uh, TGA website, and probably that will develop into 12. And now these will be used as self-tests rather than point of care and lab testing. So that's just something about the tests and where they are. And yes, they're going to be available. They're being made available all around the world. They'll be registered as a device under the TGA approach. You know, there's still a few issues about the tests and their validity. And if they're 90% effective or even 80%, 
How many do we miss? That means people go into the community or workforce, depending on how they're being used, and they may spread COVID to other people. I suppose the next question then arises is what are some of the difficulties in the testing? It's claimed that you get a result within 15 to 30 minutes, depending on the test. Mm -hmm. It's claimed the best sensitivity I can find by uh, claimed by uh, manufacturers or sponsors is 96.52%. And this is based, of course, on people who know how to take a sample and know how to do the test. Specificity, in other words, uh, the number of false positives or negatives, the specificity is 99.68%, which is excellent. So we're going to have confidence that there won't be too many false positives in that testing regime. So that's just something about the test. Mm -hmm. Now, PCR, the advantage of PCR is that it can detect virus prior to the onset of symptoms and during symptoms and for about 10 days after, 10 to 20 days after the onset of symptoms, even though the virus titer goes down. But PCR can still be positive between zero and 20 days, assuming symptom onset is around about three to five days, which it usually is. But these antigen tests are really pre-symptomatic. That's the best time to use them on asymptomatic people. And, they, and that's when you get the best results because like all viral infections, the peak of antigen excretion or virus excretion, therefore antigen excretion, is prior to the onset of symptoms. So they do have a use, obviously, uh, household contacts or before people go to work, before people go to school, people going on work sites, people traveling, et cetera. You could think of a lot of uses uh, and applications, which is terrific. But understand that after about probably eight days, these tests are pretty useless from day zero. So there is quite a narrow window. Therefore, you would have to do them two to three times a week if you were, say, to monitor a workforce or monitor teachers at a school or monitor patients uh, in some other way. So uh, this has to be done again and again if you're going to capture that five-day window. So that's one disadvantage of it, whereas the PCR test has got a 20-day window and is far more sensitive, an 18 to 20-day window, depending on when the infection ha ha happens. And usually a couple of days after infection, then virus replication begins. Uh, and therefore, it can be nucleic acid and the uh, antigen can theoretically be detected. But your window is now narrower. Therefore, it's probably better, in fact, on asymptomatic contacts, asymptomatic people. If you're symptomatic, for goodness sakes, get a PCR test mm -hmm. because uh, you really want to know 100% if you have COVID or not, not just with an antigen test. But of course, if you're a, a tradie and you're going off to your work site and your boss says, well, we've got to test you guys for two or three times per week to make sure you're not carrying the virus, well, then I think it's actually quite useful. I mean, we'll, we'll still miss 10%, probably, possibly more. But nevertheless, it will give you an indication. Or if you were about to travel from one city to another by plane, you might want to get one of these test kits, make sure you're negative, uh, and make sure you're negative when you come back from your holiday or uh, your place of work or whatever it might be. So I think this is the kind of thing that can have a role there. It can also have a tremendous role, I think, in institutional settings where you don't need to go off and do PCR tests all the time. You could monitor your patients in a closed community setting twice a week, say, 
And then that would give you some confidence that there's no virus in that particular facility. So I think there are applications, but even in an institutional setting, you've probably got one health officer or registered nurse uh, who is somewhat trained in taking samples, which is the very first step and the most important. The rest is entirely mechanical. It all depends on how the sample is taken. Now, I did look at a number of these tests and their instructions, and I just want to just go through what you're supposed to do in getting these tests, which is really quite extensive. Uh, so some of them take saliva, some of them take swabs of the back of the throat, some of them take nasal swabs. So all tests vary, which is a bit of a disadvantage for a start. If you're lazy, you might decide just to get saliva, mm. but I'm not sure how good those tests are. And again, as I said before, there needs to be comparison, point-to-point -point, uh, comparison uh, between these uh, tests. So some of the flow diagrams are very complicated. Say taking a nose swab mm -hmm. and a nasopharyngeal swab, then putting the swab into buffer, then turning it several times with your wrist, uh, shaking it, uh, and then taking a few drops of that buffer. So you need a pipette of some sort, which you also need to dispose of correctly. And you also need gloves and you also need a mask when you're doing this. And preferably also, also PPE, you really need a lab coat of some sort, in my view, in case that person has COVID. You do have to maintain proper precautions as somebody who takes this. So you basically, if you're a GP, you probably need to dedicate a registered nurse or a lab person with experience to do all this and to be basically gowned up. Now I'm thinking, okay, we're going to send these kids off at home and mum and dad are going to do them. It could be a great way to spread them from one person to another, not to mention your next door neighbours and grandpa and so on. So I have a few doubts about these tests unless there is a dedicated person who can take the sample properly, dispose of everything, have the proper PPE, do proper records, should all be recorded, right? And then if there's a positive test, they should be sent off to get a PCR test to confirm it. And of course, they should be advised to stay at home. But as I mentioned before, what is the advice? Where is the advice? It's not from TGA or the current Departments of Health. I can't find any advice. So that's, I think, a big flaw in the current situation. And I think if they'd have run this first by the College of GPs or Infectious Diseases or the College of Pathologists, um, then or even the AMA, then presumably... Uh, they might have got some pretty uh, strong feedback about these points, I would hope. Instead, we're, what we've got is, you know, uh, studies uh, really produced by companies. So one needs to be careful in some way, but uh, in terms of interpretation, although I trust what they do. Uh, so their claims of 95%, I, I think part of the good news uh, in the science is that they don't cross-react with the other human coronaviruses, 229E, LL63, OC43, HKU1, which are the other four normal coronaviruses, they don't cross-react with MERS or SARS-1. Uh, so they're fairly specific, as you would expect they should be. It is essentially an immunoassay, uh, but looking for antigen. And at the same time, there are also antibody assays, but that's another story. There is about a dozen of those as well. They look for IgG and IgM. But again, I have the same questions about training, uh, taking 
the samples, in this case it would be blood, uh, which has other issues in terms of infection control and so on, cross-contamination and so on. Uh, so these are, you know, all questions. I fear we might get a lot of false positives and I fear we might get more false negatives simply because samples are not being taken correctly. So I'm, I'm sorry I spoke for so long, but that, that, that's sort of a grand overview from me, if that assists. Gary, you've touched on so many of the questions that I've been thinking about, and I'm so glad to hear you say it so eloquently. It, it really is uh, quite boggling that uh, something's going to be available to the public. And even, well, certainly I, I am a GP. I have no idea where it sits in regard to the national COVID strategy. I have no clear idea of whom I would recommend people to use it, not to use it. And like you said, how to interpret the results if they did the tests correctly. Too many questions there. There are so many questions and I think uh, they will, uh, I mean, the body of questions will simply get larger until there's a lot of clarity, both from the companies and ease of taking samples and disposing of reagents and so on is very, very important. I've just pulled up one rapid antigen test. I won't say which one. Of course, remember some of them are 15 minutes, others are 30. So uh, one needs to be a bit careful with the test and really read the instructions well. But just to read it out, they insert a sterile swab into the nostril of the patient. They swab over the surface of the posterior nasopharynx. They withdraw the sterile swab from the nasal cavity, insert it into an extraction buffer tube. They squeeze it and stir the swab five times at least. Uh, they remove the swab whilst, while squeezing the sides of the tube to extract the liquid from the swab. Then they press the nozzle caps tightly into the tube. Then they apply three drops of extracted specimen to uh, the well of the test device. And then they wait 15 to 30 minutes. When I look at that, this is basically a one hour test. By the time somebody walks in and you have a bit of a chat and you take a sample and you do all this and they wait for their half hour, uh, you know, this is not a 15 minute test. And the interpretation of the test result looks like a pregnancy test. You know, there's a control line and a, and a test line, uh, but you need to understand what a control line is. Mm. And mum and dad may not know uh, necessarily. Or, you know, the fellow who looks after occupational health and safety on a work site may not have a clue. So it does require just a little bit of training. I then look at, you know, it's followed up with what is, is one page and about a font of three uh, of extraordinary information about explanation and summary and performance characteristics and analysis and warnings and precautions and so on. And lastly, you get the limitations of the test. And even in these instructions, it doesn't really tell you how to interpret a negative test or a positive test. And it should say, if you have a positive test, then advise that person to self-isolate, get a PCR test straight away and follow the rules in your state or territory uh, as if you were PCR positive uh, and self-isolate and ask your immediate family members too to be aware or maybe go and get tested by PCR, which is a far more sensitive test, of course and would pick it up even in the asymptomatic phase. So, you know, has it all been thought through well? I, I don't think so. I think it could be explained a lot simpler, a lot better by not only the companies, uh, but also the various uh, health departments. I don't like being critical of others, but I think this has you know, got the potential for um, 
misinterpretation and misuse uh, by people that have zero training. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about mums and dads and people on work sites, essentially, or frontline workers working in airlines or customs or whatever it might be uh, that wish to use this or schools. And, and I think it can be useful. And I hope it is a 96% sensitivity, then I think it would be very useful. Uh, but I don't see any real world data here to tell me that's true. So I'm still, as a consultant, I'm still <laughs> researching and uh, trying to find the data to convince myself that this is a very good thing to do. You know, fairly conservative, I guess, and I would prefer PCR testing uh, because we can really trust that to yep. 99.99%. Uh, Gary, at the same time, we are making it harder for people to get PCR tests because the facilities are now being wound back. Yes, and it's also a very expensive test compared to the antigen test. Uh, I, I think by about a factor of 10, I believe, but I'm not entirely sure there, but it is certainly more expensive. Uh, but in while PCR is more expensive, you don't need to do it every week. <laughs> I mean, if it's going to cover you for 18 days, whereas the rapid antigen test, you would need to do it regularly. Uh, I would suggest at least twice a week, if not three times, depending on your circumstances. And if, I mean, I know friends in the movie business who fly in and fly out and they get these rapid antigen or PCR tests three times a week to make sure they are negative because they're interacting closely with so many people on the set. And that makes sense. Uh, so I can see it's got its uses, but there's still many, many questions as I've already outlined. Do you have an idea of the costs per kit? As far as I understand, they're about $10 is what I'm told, but they may vary, of course. There are about eight kits available. So I should say eight kits or so registered by TGA. And when you look at where they come from, we've got six of them from China, one from Korea and one from the US. And I'd got no data on the Chinese ones, except from the companies. And there's no head-to-head -head on all these. The one from the US, I mean, naturally, we would tend to trust that, I suppose. Yep. And there's also one from Korea, which is supplied by Roche which also looks quite good. But they're all different in terms of the samples they take, um, the method involved of the preparation of the sample and the machinery, if you like, they use to get their test line and their control line, uh, which you then have to understand what that is. It's not like a pregnancy test where you get a plus or a dipstick test where you can see color on a, on a stick uh, and make and you know, be accurate to 99% uh, as you can. And then you might go and get it confirmed with your doctor uh, if there's a problem or whatever the result is. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I think um, it's going to up, open up a little bit of a Pandora's box in my view. Yeah. So whilst we wait for, if you like, the dust to settle in for us to have a clearer idea of its use and where it should not be used, and which kit is probably better than the other or easier to use, what sorts of advice would you give to, um, to our GP listeners, Gary? Well, I think these things will be available. So people are going to buy them. And I think every time we have the opportunity to talk to a patient, we can uh, speak to them about this rapid antigen test or preferably have a printed sheet that uh, tells them about their use and about some of the pitfalls and, and what to do if they're positive. Well, let's say they get a positive test. Who are they going to call? Probably their GP. Uh, and uh, the GP will have to give advice. And presumably that advice will be 
quite simple. Go and get an antigen test and assume it's PCR positive and follow the uh, state and territory health advice in terms of isolation and get further information. Because if you are positive, then obviously you're putting other people at risk at home and in the workplace. Yeah. Uh, so this is really, really important. Given the fact that the vaccine, that, you know, 90 whatever percent now have got a first dose, at least in the ACT where I live, so I can give them a plug at 99% now for a first dose. And uh, we're going to be approaching that second dose very quickly by the end of November, probably also 98%. That's great. But antibody wanes. Mm -hmm. And antibody wanes, depending on the vaccine you get and depending on how old you are and the status of your health and immune system, antibody wanes probably at around about five to six months. And in some people, if they're very healthy, it might last a bit longer to uh, seven or eight months. But nevertheless, we will need boosters. Mm -hmm. So in between, we could still get this virus and uh, rapid antigen tests can help, but we can still get this virus and we will need a booster for eligible people and particularly those at risk and vulnerable, obviously, should be uh, the first cab off the rank. Uh, but what happens uh, for those who don't get boosters? They're going to get their vaccine. Well, then I think there's a role for these rapid antigen tests to make sure uh, that they are not carrying COVID asymptomatically. If you have it symptomatically, you'll know there'll be a slight cold or a sore throat and you'll go off and do a test. But we need to know how to use these tests, how often to use them, their interpretation and when to use them. And different groups will have different opinions. I think people at work sites, people working in a cafe, people working on airlines or people working in customs might all have a different view. And we need some direction from departments of health saying, well, if you work in these groups, then it might be sensible to test your staff two or three times a week. For example, I'm just throwing that in the air. Yeah. Uh, so we need some policy around this yep. to advise uh, GPs, who then, of course, are the first port of call to advise their patients. That's very, very important. So it's going to be an extra, yet again, an extra uh, layer of information and things to do. It'll be added to the GP to-do list. It will simply be the case, uh, I'm afraid. David, and uh, we need to also prepare the uh, prepared GPs and frontline health workers and people that uh, get consulted. Pharmacists, I'm sure, would get consulted, for example, uh, by people. Pharmacists will probably sell this kit to the public. I'm not even sure how you buy one, but um, uh, you can, I, I presume you get them from pharmacists and various chemist outlets and so on. You'll be able to buy one. And sure, if I was traveling overseas, I'd probably take one or two with me and um, make sure I was negative if I felt unwell and so on. And if, I, if it was positive, I would seek to get a confirmatory test. But remember, you do need a PCR to confirm. I also wonder, Gary, you know, we're always taught see one, do one, teach one. That's our training. And if we've never seen how a test is done, how are we going to be able to help our patients especially if you've got eight different tests doing different types of saliva and nasal swabs or throat swabs, it, and, then, and then all that swirling around, it is going to be a nightmare. Well, that's why it's better off being rolled out by a service provider like um, a pathology group, okay. um, in my mind, or specific point of care testing. If people are looking after, say, a nursing home, then they can have specific point of care testing. But of course, you can get PCR specific point of care testing too. 
not just rapid antigen. Um, it, it has a role and we have to find out how it fits in to give us confidence and not allow the virus to spread yet again mm -hmm. through either poor sampling or, or uh, the test itself not being as sensitive. So ideally, I think it's always best done by a lab, people that are trained, or it's best done by a single person who has experience and might work for an organization that, that does this kind of thing all the time. Much better to be done by single groups. For example, if you wanted to do it at a school, let's say you wanted to test your teachers every day, I imagine it'd be too difficult to test children. But if you wanted to test teachers every day, then um, you could do that. And it would be best done, say, by a trained um, occupational health safety officer or nurse. Gary, you, you're asking all the right questions. I can see that your mind's just ticking over nonstop. But everything that you're thinking about and every question you've asked is so relevant to us as GPs. I'm just wondering if when things start to crystallise in your mind about the utility or the lack of utility of these um, kits or how to better use them, would it be possible for me to just once again tap into your mind and, and, and hear how it's crystallising? Well, I think there's a, a way to go in my mind. And what I'm afraid of is that these tests will become available and they'll be misused and that will actually spread the virus in the community. Right. You see, if these samples are not taken properly and you get a negative test, you think you're fine and you uh, hop off to a nightclub or a sporting event or somewhere, you know, or the Australian Open, where there's a large number of people, you could suddenly be a person who is spreading it to five or six people. Remember, the our effective number is predicted to be somewhere between five and eight, depending on what paper you read. But that's more than influenza, which is 1.5, right? <laughs> so it can be easily spread. It's not as dangerous as measles, which has an R number of around about 16. But when you're getting up to five to eight, this is a serious concern. Now, a negative test might give me confidence to go out and not wear a mask and go out and mix with a lot of people, uh, go to the races, go to a footy game, whatever it might be, and I'll theoretically have got the potential at least to spread it to a lot of people. Masks are going to disappear, particularly outdoors. Masks will disappear and have almost already in restaurants and pubs, depending what state you live in. Uh, there's going to be a lot more freedoms and our awareness is going to go down. Yep. And so there's this potential for spread. Now, you know, I would hate to think that a rapid antigen test could actually contribute to spread right. when the whole idea of it really uh, is to help stop spread or mitigate spread. Yes. And as you know, the Gary mantra has always been, we absolutely need to keep up our awareness of hygiene and distancing and masks and how old you are and how susceptible you are, what risk you're in, what risk group and so on. I believe a few groups are now developing various apps uh, that help you do a risk assessment on yourself, which I think would be incredibly useful. Uh, so, you know, if, if you're 65 and um, you're in good health, but you had a heart operation a few years ago, then you can put in, and you're on X, Y, and Z drugs, you can put all that into the risk assessment app, which will tell you, well, we think you should go and get a booster within six months. We think you should keep up a little social distancing and wear a mask in crowded places at least. Uh, and be careful when, say, you're mixing with children um, because they can uh, have an asymptomatic carriage of the virus and not realise it. So we still need to be very, very careful if we're going to keep variants and 
current viruses, but also variants in the future under control. The other, uh, speaking of variants, the other thing I was thinking about is I'm not sure how quickly these rapid antigen tests can change to be able to detect a new variant. Mm. That is unclear to me at this stage, and I don't, I can't find any information on that. But having said that, uh, new genetic sequences are uploaded all the time on the Gizade database, which is constantly consulted by companies anyway, to be able to make rapid antigen tests and vaccines, of course, uh, and PCR tests. And so in theory, they could be updated fairly quickly, uh, but then others would have to be withdrawn and new ones would have to be rolled out and, and so on and so forth. So I think, yes, there's a use. I think it's a limited use. I hate to see it being used instead of PCR. I think that would be a mistake. And I personally think PCR testing should be available uh, constantly to the community. You mentioned earlier that uh, centres are diminishing, and that's a pity in my view. I think we should be able to have walk-in centres where we can get a PCR test on the vagus suspicion so we can not only protect ourselves, but in particular, those around us. Gary, one of the things I've always valued speaking with you is your mantra, because every time I go out, all I do is I just hear your mantra. And, uh, <laughs> and I just hope more people are aware, because as I go out even now in Sydney, I find a lot of people are, it's almost like it's almost forgotten. Well, we've seen the resurgences, David, in the UK and the US. We've seen 30,000, 40,000 a day cases in the UK. In Russia, just yesterday, they had 37,000 cases and 1,000 deaths in 24 hours. This is because of resurgence. This is the false confidence of vaccination. Uh, you need to be a little bit careful. And of course, we have a reasonably large number of people that are still unvaccinated. It, to my mind, they're only a risk to themselves, but they're a risk to the community in that they need, you know, a greater proportion of those will need hospitalization and care. So, uh, and we need to care for them, of course. I, I'm not in favour of mandatory vaccination at all myself, but I, I think we should keep educating the community uh, about the importance of vaccines, uh, why these vaccines are relatively safe and everything we know about them. There's got to be complete transparency. The same goes with these kits. We need to understand them. And my view is that mum and dad out there are not going to understand these except as a pregnancy test. Okay. And then they'll have the challenge of doing it disposing of it, interpreting yep. the result, and they'll get, almost certainly be going to their GP and say, oh, I've got a positive. What do I do now? <laughs> you know, where do they ring? Who, who do they call? I know there are COVID centres where you can ring and get advice, but most people actually go to their GPs for advice. Gary, I think that, um, you know, it's been absolutely amazing talking to you because some of the questions I have had, you've articulated and you've raised a lot of issues that I had not thought through. Uh, and it makes me realize that maybe these sorts of things are being available long before we understand how best to use it. So um, I, I'm not quite sure where to take it from here, except that I also have a significant concern in my own heart about the fact that you don't want a test that's supposed to help you control a virus, spread it. I, I guess, Gary, if, if ever you have an idea of where it's going to go or things start to clear in your mind, as I said earlier, I would love to be able to reach out to say, tell us what you've learned now and where you're at, just so that we can be clearer as GPs where we stand with regards rapid antigen testing by individuals. 
Well, I think the um, important thing is that they don't replace PCR tests and people understand that these tests have limitations. And as medical scientists, uh, medical practitioners, um, nurses and so on have a good understanding of limitations. They, they understand that concept. Whereas people out there in the world that don't have any form of medical training, you know, think that a test is absolute and, and think that it will give them confidence. A negative is a negative. No, it isn't. A positive is a positive. Generally, yes, but not necessarily. And so on. <laughs> and we understand that from a laboratory point of view. And, and some tests are near 100% accurate, but not all. And this is an example of something that's in the 90s, and I suspect probably in the 80s, compared to PCR. And it's highly dependent on how you take the sample. Highly dependent. And then depending on how you treat that sample and so on. It has some dangers and we need to be careful. I mean, personally, particularly having a laboratory background, I'd, I'd rather see these things done in labs or at least by officers or technicians that are trained in a particular organisation and that have got some kind of lab background uh, and understand dis uh, disposal and uh, getting rid of things safely. Uh, what do you, I mean, if you've got a kit, uh, that happens to be positive, you need to dispose of that very, very safely. It mm. ought to go in a particular bin. If you're in a lab, it'll go in a particular bin dedicated to mm. this kind of thing. Uh, it needs to be sort of the sharps bin, so to speak, <laughs> for these kits that nobody goes into and gets disposed of and autoclaved, you know, and so on. You know, I, I don't know how they uh, do that. And I think the person taking the swab should also be fully gowned up with proper PPE which to my mind is a mask and a shield and goggles, uh, gloves, of course, disposal of gloves uh, and a disposable gown uh, because this virus is highly infectious. And uh, if you're taking that sample from a person, saliva, whatever, can get into the atmosphere, be aerosolized and infect uh, another human being or survive on surfaces for a while and then infect another human being. It, it need to be just a little more careful here, I think. But as you know, David, I come from a very conservative point of view, and uh, I, uh, I, I just think these, these things need to be thought about and discussed within each organisation, GP clinics, pharmacists, and so on. Hospitals, of course, would have no problem, uh, but I doubt they'd use it. They would just use PCR tests. But they, I, I can see uh, an advantage in a business or particular group uh, that is you know, remote or whatever. These things could be useful but you'd also need to use them probably three times a week, in my view, to make sure you're constantly covering that interval of virus excretion, which is different to the PCR excretion, the antigen excretion, which is around about an eight to 10 day window, depending on the person. And it peaks, of course, and then drops. If I was to draw you a graph, it would peak and then, and then drop like a classic graph, whereas the PCR goes up and lasts a long time, 220 days. So you know, PCR from that point of view is a much more accurate and safer test. Mm. Anyway, I'm still reading and <laughs> still researching, and I'm hoping that someone is going to do a really good head-to-head -head blind study on these tests to really determine what the uh, sensitivity and specificity is. So we really know, compared to the gold standard, which would be a PCR test, and we have these eight available now, as I said, six from China, one from the US, one from Korea, although it's, it's brought out by Roche, which is more international. So we'll, we'll just have to see what people think. There's really no data on their use yet. 
in Australia anyway, and there's no head-to-head comparison. That's not done independently, I mean, by university group or something like this, as opposed to a company. Um, Not that I think the companies are giving forced results or anything like that, but I think it also, independent verification is very, very important when it comes to any sort of claim. Gary, I, I just love the fact that you are conservative, that you are careful, that you are thoughtful. And I really do thank you for sharing with us the way you're thinking about this issue. Uh, there's no easy answer to it just yet, no clarity, uh, but that's just where it is, I guess. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what other regulators come out with in the future, uh, particularly the FDA and MHRA in the UK, EMA in the EU, and to see how they use these tests will be an interesting litmus test. And um, there'll be a bit of a canary in the mind for us. Mm. And we'll be able to see what's going on overseas. Yes. Once again, thank you for your time, Gary. And um, let's not forget the Gary Gerben mantra. Social distancing (laughs) in masks. (laughs) Yes, still keep up awareness, please. Thank you so much for that. And thanks for sharing your thoughts with us. You're very welcome. Very pleased to be on the program. And thanks again for the invitation, David. Always great talking to you. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.